Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. But now, on with our story time. The next January, gossips were mildly interested in the fact that Lavinia's child had commenced to talk at the age of only 11 months. His speech was somewhat remarkable, both because of its difference from the ordinary accents of the region and because it displayed a freedom from infantile lipsing of which many children of three or four might well be proud. The boy was not talkative, yet when he spoke, he seemed to reflect some elusive element wholly unpossessed by Dunwich and its denizens. This strangeness did not reside in what he said, or even in the simple idioms that he used, but seemed vaguely linked with his intonation or with the internal organs that produced the spoken sounds. His facial aspect, too, was remarkable for its maturity, for though he shared his mother and grandfather's chinlessness, his firm and precociously shaped nose united with the expression of his large, dark, almost Latin eyes to give him an air of quasi-adulthood and well-nigh preternatural intelligence. He was, however, exceedingly ugly despite his appearance of brilliancy. There seemed something strange about him. His skin and hair, not entirely human-looking, oddly elongated ears, he was soon disliked even more decidedly than his mother and grandsire, and all conjectures about him were spiced with references to the bygone magic of old Watley, when he shrieked the dreadful name of Yogg Sothoth in the midst of a circle of stones, with a great book open in his arms before him. Dogs aboard the boy and he was always obliged to take various defensive measures against their barking menace. Meanwhile, old Watley continued to buy cattle without measurably increasing the size of his herd. He also cut timber and began to repair the unused parts of his house, a spacious, peaked roof affair whose rear end was buried entirely in the rocky hillside and whose three least ruined ground floor rooms, had always been sufficient for himself and his daughter. There must have been prodigious reserves of strength in the old man to enable him to accomplish so much hard labor, and though he still babbled dementedly at times, his carpentry seemed to show the effects of sound calculation. It had already begun as soon as Wilbur was born when one of the many tool sheds had been put suddenly in order, clapboarded, and fitted with a stout, fresh lock. Now, in restoring the abandoned upper story of the house, he was a no less thorough craftsman. His mania showed itself only in his tight boarding up of all of the windows in the reclaimed section, though many declared 
and it was a crazy thing to bother with the reclamation at all. Less inexplicable was his fitting up of another downstairs room for his new grandson, a room which several callers saw, though no one was ever admitted to the closely boarded upper story. The chamber he lined with tall, firm shelving, along which he began to gradually arrange, in apparently careful order, all the rotting ancient books and parts of books which during his own day had been heaped promiscuously in odd corners of various rooms. I made use of them, he would say, as he tried to mend a torn black leather page with paste, this which he prepared with a rusty kitchen stove. But the boys fitting to make better use of them. He'd overhave them as well sought as he can, for they're going to be all of his learning. When Wilbur was a year and seven months old, in September of 1914, his size and accomplishments were almost alarming. He had grown as large as a child of four, and was a fluent and incredibly intelligent talker. He ran freely about the fields and hills, and accompanied his mother on all of her wanderings. At home, he would pore diligently over strange pictures and charts in his grandfather's books, while old Wally would instruct and chastise him through long, hushed afternoons. By this time, the restoration of the house was finished, and those who watched it wondered why one of the upper windows had been made into a solid plank door. It was a window in the rear of the east gable end, close against the hill, and no one could imagine why a cleated wooden runway was built up to it from the ground. About the period of this work's completion, people noticed that the old tool house, tightly locked and windowlessly clapboarded since Wilbur's birth, had been abandoned once again. The door swung listlessly open, and when Earl Sawyer once stepped within after a cattle-selling call on old Watley, he was quite discomposed by the singular odor he encountered. Such a stench, he averred, as he had never before smelt in all his life, except near the Indian circles on the hills, and which could not come from anything sane or of this earth. But then, the homes and sheds of Dunwich folk have never been remarkable for olfactory immaculateness. The following months were void of visible events, save that everyone swore to a slow but steady increase in the mysterious hill noises. On May Eve of 1915, there were tremors which even the Islesbury people felt. Whilst the following Halloween produced an underground rumbling, strangely synchronized with bursts of flame, them which Watley's doings from the summit of Sentinel Hill. Wilbur was growing up uncannily, so that he looked like a boy of ten as he entered his fourth year. He 
read Avonlea by himself now, but talked much less than formerly. A settled taciturnity was absorbing him, and for the first time, people began to speak specifically of the dawning look of evil in his strange face. He would sometimes mutter an unfamiliar jargon, which chilled the listener with a sense of unexplainable terror. The aversion displayed towards him by dogs had now become a matter of wide remark, and he was obligated to carry a pistol in order to traverse the countryside in safety, even though he was four. His occasional use of the weapon did not enhance his popularity amongst the owners of canine guardians. A few callers at the house would often find Lavina alone on the ground floor, while odd cries and footsteps resounded in the boarded-up second story. She would never tell what her father and the boy were doing up there, though once she turned pale and displayed an abnormal degree of fear when a fish peddler tried the locked door leading to the stairway. That peddler told the store loungers at Dunwich Village that he thought he heard a horse stamping on that floor above. The loungers reflected, thinking of the door and runway, and of the cattle that so swiftly disappeared. And they shuddered as they recalled tales of old Watley's youth and of the strange things that are called out of the earth when a bullock is sacrificed at the proper time to certain heathen gods. It had for some time been noticed that dogs had begun to hate and fear the whole Whatley place as violently as they hated and feared young Wilbur personally. In 1917, the war came, and Squire Whatley as chairman of the local draft board, had hard work finding a quota of young Dunwich men fit to even be sent to a development camp. The government, alarmed at such signs of wholesale regional decadence, sent several officers and medical experts to investigate. They conducted a survey which New England newspaper readers may still recall. It was the publicity attending this investigation which sent reporters on the track of the Whatleys and caused the Boston Globe and Arkham Advertiser to print flamboyant Sunday stories of young Wilbur's precociousness, old Whatley's black magic, the shelves of strange books, the sealed second story of the ancient farmhouse, and the weirdness of the whole region and its hill noises. Wilbur was four and a half then, but he looked like a lad of fifteen. His lips and cheeks were fuzzy with coarse dark brown, and his voice had begun to break in puberty. Earl Sawyer went out to the Wudley place with both sets of reporters and cameramen and called their attention to the strange stench which now seemed to trickle down from the sealed upper spaces. It was, he said, exactly like a smell he had found in the tool shed, abandoned when the house was finally repaired, and like the faint odors which he sometimes thought he caught 
near the stone circles on the mountains. Dunwich folk read the stories when they appeared and grinned over the obvious mistakes. They wondered, too, why the writers made so much of the fact that old Whatley always paid for his cattle in gold pieces of extremely ancient dates. Whatleys had received their visitors with ill-concealed distaste, though they did not dare court further publicity by a violent resistance or refusal to talk. For a decade, the annals of the Whatleys sink indistinguishably into the general life of a morbid community used to their strange ways and hardened to their May Eve and all hallows orgies. Twice a year, they would light fires on the top of Sentinel Hill, at which times the mountain rumblings would recur with greater and greater violence. While at all seasons, there were strange and portentous doings at the lonely farmhouse. In the course of time, callers professed to hear sounds in the sealed upper story. Even when all the family were downstairs, they wondered how swiftly or how lingeringly a cow or bullock was usually sacrificed. There was talk of a complaint to the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, but nothing ever came of it, since Dunwich folk were never anxious to call the outside world's attention to themselves. About 1923, when Wilbur was a boy of ten, whose mind, voice, stature, and bearded face gave all the impressions of maturity, a second great siege of carpentry went on at the old house. It was all inside the sealed upper part, and from bits of discarded lumber, people concluded that the youth and his grandfather had knocked out all the partitions and even removed the attic floor. It left only one vast open void between the ground story and the peaked roof. They had torn down the great central chimney, too, and fitted the rusty range with a flimsy outside tin stovepipe. In the spring after this event, old Wadley noticed the growing number of whippoorwills that would come out of cold spring glen to chirp under his window at night. He seemed to regard this circumstance as one of great significance, and he told the loungers at Osborne's that he thought his time had almost come. They whistle just in tune with my breathing now, he said. Then I guess they're getting ready to catch my soul. They know it's a-going out, and don't calculate to miss it. You'll know, boys, after I'm gone whether they give me or not. If they do, they'll keep up a singing and a laughing till the break of day. If they don't, they'll kinder quiet down like. I expect them in all the souls they hunt, for they have some pretty tough tussles sometimes. On Lamas Night, 1924, Dr. Hewton of Islesbury was hastily summoned by Wilbur Whatley. Whatley had lashed his one remaining horse through the darkness and telephoned from Osborne's in the village. 
He found old Wadley in a very grave state, with a cardiac action and stertorous breathing, which told of an end not far off. The shapeless albino daughter, an oddly bearded grandson, stood by the bedside, whilst from the vacant abyss overhead there came a disquieting suggestion of rhythmical surging or lapping as of the waves on some level beach. The doctor, though, was chiefly disturbed by the chattering night birds outside, the seemingly limitless legion of whippoorwills that cried their endless message in repetitions timed diabolically to the wheezing gasps of the dying man. It was uncanny and unnatural. Too much, thought Dr. Hewton. Like the whole of the region he had entered so reluctantly in response to this urgent call. Toward one o'clock, old Wadley gained consciousness and interrupted his wheezing to choke out a few words to his grandson. More space, Willie. More space soon. You grow, and that grows faster. It'll be ready to serve ye soon, my boy. Open up the gates to Yog so thought with a long chant that you'll find on page 751 of the complete edition, and then put a match to the prison. Fire from earth. Can't burn it no how. He was obviously quite mad. After a pause, during which the flock of whippoorwills outside adjusted their cries to the altered tempo, there were some indications of the strange hill noises still coming from far off. He spoke again. Feed it regular, Willie, and mind the quantity, but don't let it grow too fast for the place. For if it busts quarters, or gets out before ye opens to Yogg-Satha, it's all over and no use. Only them from beyond can make it multiply and work. Only them, the old ones, as wants to come back. But speech gave way to gasps again, and Lavinia screamed at the way the whippoorwills followed the change. It was the same for more than an hour when the final throaty rattle came. The doctor drew shrunken lids over the glazing gray eyes as the tumult of birds faded imperceptibly into silence. Lavinia sobbed, but Wilbur only chuckled whilst the hill noises rumbled faintly. They didn't get him, he muttered in his heavy bass voice. Wilbur was by this time a scholar of really tremendous erudition. He had a one-sided way and was quietly known by correspondence to many librarians in distant places where rare and forbidden books of old days are kept. He was more and more hated and dreaded around Dunwich because of certain youthful disappearances, which suspicion laid vaguely at his door, but was always able to silence inquiry through fear or through use of that fund of old-time gold which still, as in his grandfather's time, went forth regularly and increasingly for cattle-buying. 
He was now tremendously mature of aspect, and his height, having reached the normal adult limit, seemed inclined to wax beyond that figure. In 1925, when a scholarly correspondent from Miskatonic University called upon him one day and departed pale and puzzled, he was fully six and three quarters feet tall. For all the years, Wilbert had treated his half-deformed albino mother with a growing contempt, finally forbidding her to go with him to the hills on May Eve and Hallow Mass. And in 1926, the poor creature complained to Mamie Bishop of being afraid of him. There's more about him than I can tell you, Mamie, she said. But nowadays, there's more than what I know myself. I vow. I don't know what he wants, nor what he's trying to do. That Halloween, the hill noises sounded louder than ever and fire burned on Sentinel Hill, as usual, but people paid more attention to the rhythmical screaming of vast flocks of unnaturally belated whippoorwills, which seemed to be assembled near the unlighted Whatley farmhouse. After midnight, their shrill notes burst into a kind of pandemonic cachination, which filled all the countryside and not until dawn did they finally quiet down. When they vanished, hurrying southward, where they were fully a month overdue. What this meant, no one could quite be certain until later. None of the country folk seemed to have died, but poor Lavinia Wadley, the twisted albino, was never seen again. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night.